0: An aha moment that connects us to a sense of possibility. This, my friends, is what I call an electric idea. Welcome back to Electric Ideas. Today's guest is Krista St. Germain. And wow, I'm really glad I found her. You guys, you've, you're going to want to listen to this. Everybody has gone through grief or known someone who has experienced grief or continues to grieve. And the honest truth is, We don't know how we're going to feel until we're on the other side. And when we're the one watching a loved one go through grief, it's really hard to know how to show up. So Krista St. Germain is a grief expert. She's a widow herself. She's a mom. She's host of the Widowed Mom podcast. When her husband was killed by a drunk driver in 2016, Krista's life was completely shattered. She'd been at a really happy point. And It could have been really easy to just believe that her best days were behind her. Thankfully, Krista discovered life coaching and the concept of post-traumatic growth, and she was able to move forward and create a future she could really get excited about again. Now she coaches and teaches other widows so they can love life again too. And while this is a super sensitive topic, it felt so nourishing to connect with her because, again, we all know somebody who's grieving Or have experienced grief ourselves. And all we want to do is show up in the right way during those times. And I know this conversation will help you feel empowered to do that. So, with that, let's drop into this super meaningful conversation. Krista, welcome. I'm so happy to have you here.
1: Thank you. I'm so happy to be here.
0: It's such an important topic, grief. And I know it can be a paralyzing topic that not everybody wants to talk to. Yeah. So, I want to start with what's something you wish everyone who hasn't experienced a significant loss of a loved one, what's one thing you hope that people could understand?
1: Yeah. One thing I hope people would understand is that feelings aren't problems, right? If we could make that one switch, then how others experience grief and how we support ourselves in grief and how we support those we love in grief would be so different, right? Because most of us have been taught that feelings are problems, maybe implicitly right? But we've been taught that the idea is to be happy all the time. And so when we aren't happy and when those we love aren't happy, right? Or are in pain, then it's only natural for us to think that there's a problem that needs to be fixed. That is the exact opposite of what we need when we're experiencing grief. We're not broken and we don't need to be fixed, right? We want somebody to witness what we're experiencing to love us as we experience it, to help support us in the experience of it but not to try to fix us. And so if we could shift from feelings or problems to feelings or just experiences to allow grief would get a lot easier.
0: What a beautiful place to open because I feel like it's a tough position to be in when you know someone's had a traumatic loss and mm-hmm. you want to help them. And it. I think it's human nature to want to fix things and make mm-hmm. it better. And you're kind of arguing that this isn't something to be fixed. Yeah. So what can we do to show up for that friend or loved one who's experienced loss?
1: Yeah. I think actually it becomes a whole lot easier when we decide that feelings aren't problems to be fixed because so much of the anxiety and discomfort that we feel when we're watching someone in grief is sometimes this Pressure we're putting on ourselves that we don't even know we're, we're doing it of, oh, this is uncomfortable for me. How do I make them feel better? Right. So that I can kind of make myself feel better. And so when we can drop that, then we can just be with people as they feel and we won't be searching for the right thing to say. Right. We won't be searching for the thing to say that we think will make them feel better because we're in a place where we know that's no longer our goal. And this is what can be so frustrating to people who are experiencing grief is that they're being told by other people, well-intended things that fall very flat. So the cliches and platitudes of, well, they're in a better place, or at least they're no longer suffering. Or, you know, in my case as a widow, well, you're young, you'll find someone else, right? They would want you to be happy. Don't be sad. It'll be okay, right? All of these things that presume that where you are is a problem and are trying to get you somewhere else. And when we can drop that, then we can be with someone with, this sucks. I'm so sorry this happened to you. I love you so much. Right. I'm here with you. And we're we can peacefully be with them. And, and it doesn't feel like work because we're not trying to change anything. We're just being with what is.
0: Yes. And I I know that you mentioned you are a widow. I'm aware your husband was killed unexpectedly in, yeah. in 2016. Tell us a little bit about where you were and your kind of what what was going on in your life when that yeah.
1: happened. Yeah, yeah, I was on an emotional high. So I was forty. The, he was my second marriage, and my first marriage had not ended all that well. And so he was kind of the redemption story for me—the proof that amazing relationships are possible. So I was just on a complete high. And we were coming back from a trip that we had taken together and we had driven separately. And I had a flat tire and we pulled over on the side of the interstate and he wanted to change the tire. He did not want to wait on AAA because he was stubborn. And I didn't insist that we call them. And a driver that we later found out had both meth and alcohol in his system, broad daylight, did not see us, did not see our hazard lights and just crashed right into the back of his car. And he was trying to get in my trunk to get the spare tire and trapped him in between the two cars. So- I went from this complete high of life is amazing. I'm so glad I'm finally where I am to, oh my gosh, I think I'm never going to be happy again. My best days are surely behind me that that was as good as it's going to get in just less than, you know, 24 hours.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah. I just feel that. And I didn't know you were there.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. I was on the side of the road. Fortunately though, I think the universe is looking out for me a little bit. I wasn't actually looking. I was looking at my phone to text my daughter. She was 12 at the time and I was letting her know that we would be late. So, you know, I actually really do appreciate that I wasn't looking at the actual accident. I was looking at my phone when it happened. Doesn't make it honestly <laughs> a whole lot better or anything, but it maybe a little bit.
0: So, you shared with us that you know, people kind of with well intentions and I'm sure you went through this yourself. And I feel like that's why you can speak to this so powerfully. Yeah. That people had kind of all these good intentions and things that weren't so helpful that they said to you, what did
1: help during that time for you? One of the things that really helped was that he and I had actually worked together at the same company. And so it actually really helped in some ways it was harder because i had to go to the spaces that we had a lot of memories in and so there wasn't really that respite for some people going back to work is a respite from grief for me it it really wasn't and so there can be upsides and downsides to that but it was actually really helpful for me to be surrounded by people who loved him as much as i did right because they would tell stories about him they would talk about him they missed him too and so it i just felt a, a lot more supported but you know one of the most there are a few things that come to mind i had a couple of friends who just kind of decided to make themselves my personal like wrangler, <laughs> They just like jumped in and, you know, coordinated school supplies for my kids because it was the beginning of August when that had happened and coordinated, you know, all the, the food efforts and literally made themselves my public relations people and, you know, kind of wouldn't let anybody near me and, and like fielded all of the, the questions and, and stuff. A couple of people that I knew decided without even really asking, they were just going to mow my lawn, right? Some of my family members just came over and cleaned my house. One of my friends at one point just said, let me take you to a bookstore. You know, we don't need to talk about anything, but let me get you out of the house and just, you know, just let's be together. So those little kinds of things, those little acts where people were just trying to serve and be with me were so, so powerful.
0: That's good to know. I feel like my mother taught me that obviously you want to check in with people,
1: but to just, if you don't know what to do, just do something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because sometimes, you know, when you put yourself in the place of the person who has experienced the loss, everything in their life just feels like it exploded. And so sometimes it's a big ask for us to even know how someone can help us. Like we can't even process what has happened let alone say, Hey, yeah, could you grab me some groceries? But when somebody says, Okay, I'm at Walgreens. <laughs> you know, what do you need, right? Or they just bring you things or do things for you that they know would be be beneficial. You just wash somebody's car. You just, you know, did the thing. I've not met somebody in grief who has gotten mad about that. I'll tell you that.
0: That's really helpful. And I recognize and and you talk about how grieving isn't one size fits all or linear. But yeah. if you have someone who, you know, is grieving, this is somewhere where I struggle that I'd love your advice on. I feel this intrinsic balance of wanting to check in with them, but also mm-hmm. maybe being like, well, maybe they're just having a day where they're not mm. in, in their grief and they don't mm. want me to bring it up. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they're just not thinking about right it right now. And I'm, I'm a bother. So yeah. what advice do you have for, for treading that line of wanting to show up for your loved ones and friends, but not.
1: I used to worry about that too, until I had the experience on the other side of it. And what I realized is that we're pretty much always thinking about the loss. It's impacted every area of life. And so there really isn't a day that goes by that we aren't thinking about it. But what we often feel is that other people have forgotten. And so even if you're worried that you're going to upset the apple cart, right? And you're just going to remind them of their loss. You can put that that worry down, right? They're already thinking about it. And actually it's, it's typically very comforting to know they aren't the only ones thinking about it. So you don't have to ask deep questions, but Hey, I mean a little text message of, Hey, I'm thinking of you today. I love you. Right. That's huge. I hope that this is not
0: an insensitive comparison, but I know that one of your podcast episodes is something along the lines of where'd all my friends go. Mm. And it kind of reminded me of, having a baby, which is a positive life change and like, uh, Oh, everyone's reaching out in that first couple of weeks, yeah. like everyone's doing stuff. And then two months in, sometimes you're like, Whoa, and you're crying in the
1: middle of the night. Yeah. And yeah, you feel like you're all alone. Yeah. I think there are a lot of parallels, right. Where you do, there is for most people, an outpouring of support in the early days, there are meals being brought. There's a lot of, you know, hustle and bustle and activity. And there's some, you know, sort of morning practices or events that happen depending on the culture and then there's this period where everybody goes back to their lives and it's at that point where most people who are the ones still in grief that are just realizing the impact of what has happened right they are just now going oh my gosh that wasn't a terrible nightmare it really did happen my person is actually gone and so when other people disappear is is usually the time when we we need them the most right but a lot of times and i used to do this too you hold back because of thoughts like, "Well, you know, maybe they're having a good day, and I'll just upset them. I'll just bring it back to you know the front of their mind, and that that will actually not be helpful." And it's, you know, it's just not something we have to worry about. That's really truly when people need you.
0: So when people get into grieving, I want to borrow some of some of your words. You've said many times, and I have to go. You said we suck at grief. Oh my <laughs> gosh, we sure do tell tell us about this why do we suck at grief
1: well there's a few reasons i think one is that we just don't talk much about it and so we don't know much about it and what we do know is is actually pretty shallow and a little bit outdated so most people if you ask them about grief will probably tell you that they've heard something about there being five stages to grief and and that's about all and that that's really unfortunate because just like you know anything in life there are many grief theories the five stages of grief is one of many theories, but it just kind of happened to catch on, right? And people have misinterpreted that theory so much. So it was originally a study of hospice patients. It was, it was about the process that people were going through as they accepted their own mortality and a terminal diagnosis, right? It was not about what is it like to lose someone, It was about what is it like to come to terms with your own mortality? And it was never meant by Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and David, David Kessler, who created, it It was never meant to be linear, right. To be, even though they used the term stages, they were not trying to imply that we were supposed to go through denial. Right. And then we're supposed to be angry and depression. It wasn't supposed to be this first, this, then that right experience. And so, but, but because we don't know that, we don't talk about it, then what I often find is we're comparing ourselves to something that was never even meant to capture the, the totality of a grieving experience in the first place. And we're like, well, am I angry enough? Is this the part where I'm supposed to bargain? Am I depressed now? Have I come to acceptance? And it's just like trying to put square pegs in round holes all over the place, right? And and not even giving any of the other approaches to grief any consideration. And we also use language, I think, that implies that grief ends. And so we set ourselves up for failure with that because it doesn't, grief doesn't end, right? Unless in my, the way that I think about grief, it's the natural human response to a perceived loss, okay? And perceived is really important, a perceived loss, because what one person perceives as a loss is not what another person perceives as a loss. There are many types of. Subsets of grief, so anticipatory grief, disenfranchised grief, complicated grief. like we could go down and list all kinds of grief. Nobody knows about any of those. right And, and since we can never take the loss away, we're always going to have thoughts and feelings about it. And, and thoughts and feelings are really what compromise our, our entire grief experience. Now they can change over time, and we can change them over time. But unless we can go back and, and travel backwards in time and change what happened, We're, we're not going to end grief. We're going to fold it into the fabric of our lives, right? We're going to integrate it into our lives. We're going to choose how we want to think and feel about what has happened as a part of our life, but, but we're not going to get to an end. We use like the word journey. It implies there's some destination. There isn't. We also seem to believe that time heals and we have myths around how much time is supposed to, to pass. And what we're supposed to do after that amount of time passes, right? It's different for everyone, but so often I'll see women really believing that the first year is the hardest and they kind of white knuckle their way through the first year because they tell themselves, well, if time heals and the first year is the hardest, then all I need to do is survive the first year. Well, guess what? (laughs) Nothing magical happens at the end of year one, right? The clouds do not part and angels do not sing like it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> grief is still there. And if we just avoided it all, you know, if we, if we distracted our way through the first year by, by being super busy or by eating our feelings or drinking our feelings, or, you know, there's a myriad of ways that we can just white knuckle through, then what do we find at the end of year one? Still all the same emotions that are left to be processed and maybe even a deeper realization that, oh, wow, now it's really real. They aren't coming back. And so, you know, we don't talk about it enough. We don't understand enough about grief theory. We think feelings are problems. We think time heals. We think grief has an end. Just generally speaking, we <laughs> suck at it. But that's why, it, you know, conversations like this are ones I'm so excited to have because people are going to come away from this podcast episode so much more informed and we're gradually going to suck less.
0: Okay. I'm with right? you on that. I, You had a lot of good things to reflect on and what in your in your answer there. So let me I want to I want to rewind just a minute. So part of what you're saying is this kind of one year mark like, well, I'm just going to, you know, force myself through. I know in time I'll feel better is just arbitrary that doesn't even yeah. you know, mean anything or make sense, okay? So I just want to recap that cuz I think that's really important for everyone to understand. I really like how you said that, you know, grief just Kind of become something that's permanently folded yeah. into the fabric of our lives. Sometimes when people's loved one dies, it seems like from afar that, you know, maybe their world just kind of freezes. When you're working with women who maybe are past that initial couple of weeks of just like you were saying, like high activity, high adrenaline, I would guess, and they're kind of dropping into a little bit more, like okay, this is this is my reality. What are some ways, some meaningful ways that you wish more people knew about to cope in a positive way when a loved
1: one dies? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wish more people understood how to allow themselves to feel a feeling, which it sounds basic as I say it, but what I've learned through my own experience and through years of coaching is most of us aren't taught. How to allow a feeling to pass through us. We just don't know how. We know how to distract ourselves from feelings, right? We know how to avoid them. We know how to wish them away. We know how to react to them and let them fuel our behavior, but we don't actually know how to let them be in our body so that they can be digested. And when we develop that skill, which is, is always one of the first skills that I'm helping my clients with, then feelings get a lot easier. And part of being a human on the planet and part of being a human in grief is intense feelings. Right. And so when when we develop that skill and feelings are no longer scary things, because that's what happens a lot of times. Is that if you've if you've never had a grief experience and then you have something happen that feels emotionally so intense, it can be really easy to worry that you you can't handle it, right? To worry that you're gonna fall into this black hole that's gonna swallow you, right? And so then you start you can start becoming scared of your own feelings and avoiding them, which just perpetuates the problems because those feelings, they are going to wait for you. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh yeah, I love this topic. And I think whether it's grief or you know other trauma, big or small in our lives, that this is a life skill. Yeah. So can you give us a example of a practice that has maybe turned the light switch on for some of your coaching clients? how do you help people feel feelings?
1: Yeah. So I like, there's two ways that I like to do it. One is a process I call now in O W and it's very simple to remember a little harder to learn to do, but the N stands for name or notice. And I actually think noticing is, is more important than naming. So it's, you know, I, this is anger, right? I notice I feel angry or I notice my face feels flushed, right? We're, we're noticing what's happening or naming it. Either one is fine. Then we're We're doing the exact opposite of what we are inclined to do, which is we're going to open. That's what the O stands for is we're going to open up. So instead of what we're inclined to do, which is to move away from, right, we're going to open up to. And by that, I mean, literally giving yourself permission to allow your experience. And that can actually look like physically dropping your shoulders and opening your chest. It can look like breathing it in, right? It's kind of like for female listeners who have had babies. It's what you're taught to do when you're in labor, right? When you have a labor pain, you, you are not taught to shut down and wish it away and try to make it go away. Cause it gets harder. You're taught to breathe it in, let it in, right? blow it out. Like we're going to work with it and kind of ride this wave, but we're doing that from a place of openness. So that's the open though. So. And then the W is witness or watch whatever works for you and by that i mean now we're just going to watch it as it goes through our body so we're not thinking about what created it right we're not thinking about our let's say it's sadness we're not thinking about what is making us sad to to create you know more sadness we're noticing our own felt experience of sadness in our body and witnessing it what is it like for me when sadness is in my body What part of my body do I notice the sadness in? How do I even know that I'm sad? Does it feel like a hollowness in my stomach? Does it feel like a tightness in my chest? Is it a, a clamping feeling in my throat? And then more specifically, how much can I notice about it? Does it have a particular speed? Is it more fast or maybe more slow? Does it have a particular shape? How would I describe it? Does it have a texture? Is it smooth or is it spiky? What is it like? Does it have a color? and And different things will be easier for for certain people. So some people may not resonate with the idea of shapes and colors at all, and other people can tell you once they put their attention there almost instantly how they are experiencing that emotion. So then we just watch that experience in our body as it passes through. And for most people, that's about a ninety second experience. If we're actually just, oh, there it is, right? We're naming or noticing it. I notice it. There it is. I'm open to it. It has permission to be here. I'm going to be with it. I'm going to let it be with me. And then we just get super curious and watch it as, as it goes through our body. We become the witness of our own emotional processing. And that to me is is so powerful and it can be done anywhere. So that's the first thing I teach. And then the other option I love is emotional freedom technique, also called tapping because it it just it's like instantly creating calm in your nervous system. It's like an off switch for your stress response and it's so uh self-honoring, right? You can really just tap and acknowledge how it is that you are feeling. The intention is not to change it. The intention is to be honest about it and let it flow through. And both of those ways to me are really really powerful.
0: I'm sure those are going to be helpful things for people to try. And so I'll make sure to capture those yeah, in the I'm show sure. notes too. Okay. So Another thing that I I really want to make sure we get to, I know we're, we're coming up on time, but a lot of people are familiar with post-traumatic stress, Mm -hmm. but one thing that I loved learning more about your perspective on is called post-traumatic growth. And not everybody is familiar with this. So could you tell us first, let's just define what that is.
1: Yeah. I remember hearing about it and it was kind of one of those record scratch moments where you're like, wait, what? What'd they say? Post-traumatic what? (laughs) Because I too knew about post-traumatic stress disorder, but did not know about post-traumatic growth. So it is a phrase that was coined by two researchers in the mid-90s, last names Tedeschi and Calhoun. And prior to their work, it was thought that following trauma, kind of the best we could hope for was, you know, pre-trauma, we had this baseline level of wellness or life satisfaction with the trauma that would decline and following the trauma that we, the goal was to get back to that baseline that we had experienced before the trauma, right? We were going to bounce back, but these two researchers started noticing that some people after something traumatic, and again, trauma is very subjective. We could. I have a whole discussion about that, right, too. But some people are actually experiencing deeper levels of life satisfaction, more meaning, greater levels of happiness after a trauma. Why is that? And so that's the idea of post-traumatic growth. We can, we can take a loss and, and we can bounce back and that's fine. And also if we want, we can bounce forward. Right. I like thinking of it like if a tornado comes and knocks your house down, I know that since we both live in the Midwest, you can relate, right? That happens. Tornadoes come and they knock your house down. And you could just rebuild the same house that you had before on that property. There would be nothing wrong with that. Right. It's not, it's not a morality issue. Also, though, having lived in that house for a while, you probably learned some things. You probably learned some things having lived there that maybe you would really like your kitchen to be in a slightly different, you know, design maybe you would like more outlets maybe you would like more natural light right you've learned some things by living in that house and so you could also take the opportunity to redesign your house and make it even more aligned with what you want and what you've learned is that is building a new house and redesigning it a commentary on the old house no and this is where people get stuck right we think well what if i'm if i'm even happier if i'm living a life that's even more aligned with what i want going forward, what does that mean about my spouse? What does that mean about my loss? Did I not love them enough? We make it mean all these unhelpful things. So post-traumatic growth is just the idea that you can actually take what you've learned over anything that happens to you and create a life that's even more of what you want because of the trauma, not in spite of it.
0: I'm taking that all in. So even if you go through an experience, which oh, you'd never want to wish on anybody, right? Sometimes the light cracks open, you might step into something that's even more powerful and more meaningful than you you might. Yeah. You might
1: decide it's what you want. Right. And it doesn't mean that you have to be happy that the event happened, but like, I'll give you an example for me. I went, okay, wait a minute. I'm 40. Okay. If life is this short, am I doing what I want to do? am i making the mark that i want to make on this world no offense to my former coworkers and my former employer love them it, it wasn't bad but it was like a wake up call for me where i went okay this actually it this is good but but what would be great and so no no insult to my prior life or prior choices just an opportunity for me to reassess what do i value and what do i want more of less of in my life and then i make choices accordingly
0: that's a good place to end because I just feel like discussion of post traumatic growth is a hopeful invitation.
1: Yes, I, like I hope me. it is. Yeah.
0: So I always end my podcasts uh, with the same question, and that's what's one question women should be asking themselves more.
1: Mm. Oh my gosh, there's so many great answers to that. Yeah, here's what's been on my mind lately. If if what you're doing is truly a gift that you're giving yourself. Right. And so I've been thinking about this in terms of just every choice that you make. If a choice that you make is a gift that you're giving yourself, what would that open up for you? Right. Like I think about my, my, my business, for example, if, if it's something I'm doing for me, what does that open up for me? And for me, it opens up a lot.
0: Love that. Thank you so much. I, want people to find you. This is a hard topic for a lot of people to talk about with others. And you are a lighthouse. Thank you for sharing. Tell us where, where the best face to follow you and, and learn more is.
1: Yeah. So if they're podcast listeners, the widowed mom podcast, I know it sounds a little specific. But it's actually quite valuable for anybody interested in grief or post-traumatic growth. And then coachingwithchrista.com is where all of my, you know, connections live. I do have a free course on that webpage that people can go to. I also have a podcast quiz that people can take. And I'll send you the link to that. It's for some reason not right on the top of my mind. I think it's coachingwithchrista.com forward slash podcast quiz. <laughs> I'll tell you what it is. Right. Um, but they can take that and and it will give them episodes that might be uniquely valuable to them based on where they are in grief.
0: What a great resource. We'll make sure to capture those. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm so glad you joined me today. If you're looking for more, feel free to connect with me on Instagram at Whitney woman. And if you enjoyed the show, I invite you to support me by leaving a review or sharing it with a friend. Hope you have an inspired day.